Yitzhak Rabin was Israel's first native-born prime minister, and he personified the national ethos throughout his life. Pragmatic and patriotic, Rabin fought for Israel's security, survival, and prosperity in both the military and in politics. His efforts culminated with a handshake on the South Lawn of the White House one fall day in 1993, concluding the historic Oslo Accords between Israel and the PLO. He was tragically killed by an assassin's bullet two years later. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we will tell the story of important Israeli and Arab leaders and their contributions to Arab-Israel relations over the last 70 years. My name is David Makowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Yitzhak Rabin was born in Jerusalem in 1922. Many of Rabin's beliefs were guided by his experience in the military, which began in his early teens when he was a student at the premier Kaduri Agriculture Field School. After the school was targeted several times, the students were also trained in defense against Arab attacks. During World War II, Rabin deferred a chance to study at the University of California. He wanted to be a hydraulic engineer. He came to the conclusion that if Israel was to survive, it needed professionalism at the top, leading him to devote his life to the military. He climbed the ranks of the military, and this would culminate in him becoming the chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces, known as the IDF, during the 1967 Six-Day War. After retiring from the IDF, Rabin began a five-year term as Israel's ambassador to the United States, a transition from the military to the political realm. During his time in Washington, his appreciation for the role of the U.S. in Israel's security strengthened. While in the U.S., he grew close to National Security Advisor and subsequent Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Rabin was elected to the Knesset in 1973 as a member of the Labor Party. Golda Meir resigned in early 1974 due to the public backlash against the Arab surprise attack on Yom Kippur 1973. Rabin then beat Shimon Peres for party leadership and the premiership. And during his first year and a half in office, he signed both the Sinai 1 and Sinai 2 disengagement agreements with Egypt. Rabin resigned as prime minister in early 1977. This comes after a minor scandal involving the illegal foreign bank account his wife had opened while they lived in Washington. He continued to serve in the Knesset and returned to the government as defense minister from 1984 to 1990. During his time as defense minister, the West Bank and Gaza erupted in Palestinian violence known as the First Intifada or the First Uprising. Trouble flared again throughout the occupied territories. The protesters appeared determined to harass the army at every point. Rabin's initial response was to initiate a harsh military crackdown against those taking part in the uprisings. Once he realized that the Palestinians would not abandon their goals when they were met with military force, Rabin's view evolved. He began using other means, including economic punishments and rewards and political actions, saying, quote, any policy supported by only one leg will never bring about a solution, end quote. In Rabin's mind, Israel needed to be strong enough to deter Arab attacks. But he didn't see military power as a way to dominate others. 
Likewise, he saw the West Bank as a strategic tool that could one day be traded for peace. Rabin had long felt that if Israel continued to control territory with millions of Palestinians, it would endanger the Jewish and democratic character of the state. The first intifada damaged the morale and image of his beloved military. It led him to be more vocal about finding a political solution to the conflict. In the early 1990s, when Rabin was serving his second term as prime minister, he was presented with the perfect storm to enable compromise. The Cold War had just ended. With Israel's ally, the U.S., victorious, and the Soviet Union, which several key hardline Arab states had relied on, defeated. Additionally, the U.S. had just defeated Iraq in the first Gulf War. The PLO, on the other hand, was isolated by many in the Arab world precisely because it had backed Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq. Rabin agreed for much of 93 to hold secret talks with the Palestinian National Movement, led by the Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO. Its leader, Yasser Arafat, had been considered in Israel and beyond as an arch-terrorist. This was not an easy decision for Rabin. We have come to try and put an end to the hostilities so that our children, our children's children, will no longer experience the painful of cost of war, violence, and terror. But on September 13, 1993, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shook hands at the White House after signing the Oslo Accords. The Accords set out a path for Israeli and Palestinian separation and eventual Palestinian statehood in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. This diplomatic breakthrough was not without its risks, both to Israel and to Rabin personally. A spike in Hamas terror attacks combined with rising protests against Oslo singled out Rabin personally, and this took a very heavy toll. Rabin paid the ultimate price for peace, and he was killed by a right-wing Jewish extremist after a peace rally in Tel Aviv on November 4, 1995. Here to talk about the evolution in Yitzhak Rabin's thinking as he journeyed from military leader to seize the moment for peace are two people who knew Rabin intimately, and they are Ambassadors Itamar Rabinovich and Dennis Ross. Itamar Rabinovich was Israel's ambassador to the United States, sent there by Yitzhak Rabin, and Rabin's chief negotiator with Syria from 1993 to 1996. He was a very close colleague of Rabin's, and he wrote the 2017 biography titled Yitzhak Rabin, Soldier, Leader, and Statesman. Dennis Ross is my colleague at the Washington Institute and the co-author with me of Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. He served in multiple U.S. administrations, including as Middle East envoy and chief negotiator in the H.W. Bush and Clinton administrations. We will be joined separately by Rabin's own son, Yuval, as well. So thank you both very much for being here. So if uh, I could begin with you, Itamar, if you could talk about how the military shaped him and also his first experience after the military in Washington. Okay, very well. He 
participated in building the IDF to become the awesome military machine that it proved to be in the Six-Day War in 1967. And when the war ended and he ended his role as chief of staff, Prime Minister Eshkol asked him what he wanted to do next. And to everybody's surprise, he said, I want to be ambassador in Washington because everyone who knew Rabin did not think that he was, he had the natural qualities of a diplomat. He was blunt, impatient, and, and so forth. And of course, he, he could write his ticket and he, he got the job. Now, the period in Washington, you know, he was naturally bent towards the United States in the policy debates in the Israeli national security establishment. He always wanted an American orientation as against Shimon Peres' European orientation. Rabin's father emigrated from Ukraine to America and came to Palestine from America. So he had a, a warm corner for America. And during his years in Washington, he felt in love, literally, with America and the American way of life and came back confirmed in his conviction that Israel's security had to rest on a very close relationship with the United States. And Dennis, can you talk about how you feel Kissinger, how that relationship with Rabin evolved and how it impacted Rabin's thinking about U.S.-Israel relations and Israel's role in the Middle East? You know, I don't know that somehow Kissinger fundamentally shaped Rabin's view of, of Israel's place in the region. I do think the relationship with Kissinger was significant. I think Rabin has a view of the role of deterrence of Israeli military power. What's interesting is after 67, he's very clear in terms of seeing the territory as, in a sense, chips to be given away to get something in return, but not to be seen as an end in themselves. That's much less connected to Kissinger than I think it is to the way he reads the relationship between military power, what its role is, and what also what its limits are. He was often called a parshan in Hebrew, which means an analyst. And I'm just wondering if you felt this was something that was always consistent with him or something that evolved. Well, he did have a, a very sharp mind. Actually, the nickname he had was more complimentary than commentator. He was called the analytical mind, and he excelled in that. I want to remind Dennis, although I'm sure he remembers, March 1, 1993, a breakfast that Rabin had with the United States peace team in the hotel before he went to meet with the president. And it was a conversation of analysts. The American peace team had, you know, was a very analytical group. Rabin was, uh, had this analytical mind. And it was completely informal, completely open. I don't think there would have been too many heads of foreign governments who would have conducted such a conversation, a seminar in a way with a group of American diplomats and policymakers. So, yes, he had a total recall, a very sharp mind. Rabin, I should say, is not so much this versus ideology, but this versus charisma. Rabin was not a charismatic leader. He did not have that effervescent magnetic personality that Moshe Dayan or Menachem Begin had. He had authority. The authority derived to some extent from his um, military record, expertise, but also from that analytical ability. Dennis, you remember that meeting? I remember the meeting very vividly, and it was a kind of classic example of Rabin the analyst versus Rabin the politician. 
Rabin, the analyst, was spelling out to us unmistakably that no one else had authority other than Arafat. And the implication logically was, well, why then speak to the people who don't have authority? Why not deal with the person who does? And he was creating what was the, in a sense, the justification for dealing directly with Arafat, even if he wasn't prepared himself to say it at that point. But I can tell you, when we left the meeting, the group of us, as we left the meeting and said, look, we just heard he's going to deal with the PLO. It's not clear when. Now, we, of course, knew of the Oslo channel at that point, but Rabin wasn't giving any indication that he placed much store in it. And by the way, that would continue. Did he, he struggle with this looking for that right balance between military strength and policy openness? Or did it come very natural to him? Was it very seamless in this regard? No, he uh, he understood very well that real security, if not ultimate security, could only be secured through peace or at least through diplomatic arrangements that military force alone will not carry the day. He also believed that Israel may not have the uh, resources and maybe not even the willpower in the population for decades of further conflict. He saw the changes that you mentioned at the outset and felt that it, it was time to try to make a deal. He felt that the real threats to Israel were from the east, where Iraq had just been decimated, not the regime was still there, but and Iran. He saw Iran early on as a major threat, and he therefore believed that it was time to make peace with Israel's immediate neighbors in order to confront these greater problems. And that was the kind of thinking or logic that underlay the policy. It was not ideological, but Rabin also changed under the circumstances. And normally when people opposed him, he dug in and became more entrenched in his position. So as the radical right wing opposed his policy, he began to talk about them as a cancer in the Israeli body politic, about the dangers to Israeli democracy. It became gradually more ideological as the debate inside Israel became more bitter. But underlying it all was the conviction that A, Israel could not afford additional decades of conflict, and B, that given the changes in the global scene and in the region, it was an opportunity to try to bring about a major change. Before I get to you, Dennis, maybe just expand a little bit on that point about the opposition and became more vitriolic so too, you had a sense that he did not hide his antipathy towards his critics. The West Bank settlers, the hardcore of the settlers, was and is a messianic movement. For them, the 67 war was a divine moment. So whatever he would have invested in dialogue or trying to keep open channels with them, I think would not have worked. I'm trying to get a sense of how you felt that Oslo changed Rabin's thinking about key players. He had this rivalry with Shimon Peres, who becomes his peace partner. So I'm trying to think of Rabin between 93 and 95. King Hussein, who he had a relationship with before, he clearly had a very close relationship with him, and that seemed to deepen. And so that suspicion seemed deep-seated. He had a, you know, he was famously close with Clinton. Clinton seemed to view him as a father figure. So you have these personal relationships, and what's emerging is this, I don't know if you call it a conventional wisdom, but whatever his suspicion was to Arafat, his belief in Oslo was a concept, that the land has to be partitioned for it to be a Jewish and democratic state. Dennis, I'll start with you. 
I want to parse this a little bit, David. The interesting thing is he has deep skepticism and unease about Arafat. What he feels is this is someone who can't disguise what he feels because he's not only honest, he's also intellectually honest. He can't be something he's not. That does evolve over time. Shortly after the interim agreement was signed, September 28, 1995, he said to me, at least Arafat does things that are hard for him. He said, I know we have to give up more than the other side. I know that. But I can't be the only one who's doing hard things. I have to see that the Palestinians will do hard things. I have to see that the Syrians will do hard things. And he said that was the context in which he said, at least Arafat does things that are hard for him, unlike Assad. He came to view Assad uh, near the end as someone who didn't compare favorably to Arafat, which is quite remarkable because I think early on his attitude was he would do a deal with Assad because it might be hard to get a commitment from Assad, but if he got it, he would live up to it. As you said about King Hussein, these were people who had a common language. They had a common view of how to look at things. I still remember when he had approved some building in East Jerusalem and he got a message from King Hussein that this would be damaging to him. And he made the decision, even though it was at political cost to himself, he made the decision to stop it. So you see, I I saw in Rabin someone who read each of his counterparts a certain way. And as they proved themselves to him or didn't prove themselves to him, that would affect his behavior. And I want to make one last comment on this. Because Rabin was analytical, if the circumstances changed, if the context changed, he would change. And on on Shimon Peres, they remained hostile to the last day. The stories about the idyllic relationship that developed eventually were much exaggerated. But they found out that they had to live with one another and work with one another. They were very different men with uh, different qualities, and they complemented one another. So when they worked together, it was an awesome team with, with tensions, which they knew how to overcome. Their ability to work together was one of the keys to the difference between Robin's first term and second term. Last question to both of you. And I realize the counterfactual history is, is a dangerous business and hypotheticals are dangerous. But the acronym WWRD, what would Rabin do? If Rabin was alive today. What would he say are the stakes for Israel remaining as a Jewish and democratic state? Maybe, Dennis, I'll start with you on this one. It's a very important question, David, and I think one needs to sort of look at it in a couple of dimensions. One dimension is there is no question that he was, he was preoccupied with the, the need to keep Israel Jewish and democratic. When I meet with him in February of 1995, we're sitting alone in his office and he tells me he's made the decision to build a separation fence. And I ask him, is it just to improve security? And he says, well, obviously it's for security, but he said the real point is we have to partition the land. I don't know if it's possible to reach a permanent status agreement with the Palestinians, but I do know we have to partition the land. And so he was looking ahead. His preference was to reach an agreement with the Palestinians, but if he didn't reach an agreement with the Palestinians, he was going to act in a way that would guarantee Israel's enduring identity and character as a Jewish democratic state, meaning the fulfillment truly of the Zionist ethic. I have no doubt he would have acted in a way designed to ensure that the option of 
keeping Israel Jewish and democratic was one that was not only not foreclosed, but one that he would act to ensure would ultimately be the enduring character of the state. Now, the other side of this, I can easily imagine Rabin in the current setting. I can imagine Rabin having developed by now relations with all the Sunni Arab states. He would have understood early on the strategic convergence. He would have understood the value they had in seeing Israel as kind of a bulwark against the threats they feared most. He probably would have done more to make it easier for them to be doing things not just in private with Israel, but also in public, meaning he would have done things, even if you couldn't reach an agreement with the Palestinians, he would have guaranteed a kind of separation and actions, especially in the area of settlement, like not building outside of the separation barrier. He would have done that as a way of also creating a climate that made it easier for Arab states not to be defensive about their relationship with Israel. He would have understood the strategic changes. Excellent. Thank you very much on that. Dennis, um, I give you, Itamar, the last word. To all the domestic Israeli and regional considerations, I would add the relationship with America and with the American Jewish community that to him was key. He would have sensed that Israel is losing large parts of the American public and the American Jewish community that would have worried him. I think he would have sought a deal. Maybe he would have discovered that it was not feasible, that a a full-fledged peace agreement with the Palestinians based on a two-state solution was not feasible. In that case, in my mind, he would have gone for a unilateral plan that would have stabilized Israel's borders would have kept part of the West Bank, would have told the Palestinians you can have the rest when you come to negotiate the final status agreement. That would have consolidated more or less the boundaries of Israel, would have taken care of the legitimacy issue, and would have guaranteed the Jewish and democratic character of the state. I want to thank you both for important insights into the mind and thinking of Yitzhak Rabin. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dennis. I'm delighted to be able to speak to Yuval Rabin, the son of Yitzhak Rabin, about his father's personal evolution towards peace and his legacy. Hi, David. Great to be on the podcast. Your father once said to Bill Clinton that the reason he dealt directly with Yasser Arafat was, he said, quote, beyond my family and friends, my country is my life, end quote. So what was the source of your father's Zionist patriotism? that he devoted his life to the military and then to being political leader? And did he talk about this with his family? That's the amazing thing, because he was a father in his bones and everything. He was a very a Jewish father. He worried about us. He cared about us. He knew everything about us, even when he wasn't there physically to hear it firsthand or see it firsthand. I remember being stranded in uh, Montreal in 93 or 4, I think, and I needed some help from my dad, Prime Minister of Israel, and you know how busy he was and how many things on his mind. I was staying with a friend, and he told me, I will call you tomorrow at 7 a.m., and I stood by the phone at midnight, and the guy I was, was hosting me said, your dad is prime minister, you know, he's not going to call at the exact minute. I said, no, if he said he would call at 7 a.m. his time, you can set your watch. And that's how he was as a father, even to the last minute, you know, I was already in my 40s at the time. 
he was there for us all the time. From 1993 to 1995, there's a lot of theories about your dad that after Oslo was signed, he actually over time became even more committed. But his suspicion of Arafat also deepened that both were happening at the same time between 93 and 95. Is, is that an accurate portrayal? My impression, and I think it's the best way to define it as an impression, was that the trust was being built. I think the one of the turning points of the trust building process was the Nakhshon Waxman kidnapping. And that, I think we know for a fact, that Israel suspected that Nakhshon was being held in the PA territory, and Arafat was very adamant in saying, no, he is being held in your territory. And we all know, and the end result was that the kidnapped soldier, Nachshon Waxman, was being held in Israeli-controlled territory. He was never smuggled out of that uh, region. My impression is that that point of time, I think, helped create more trust. I'm sure there were other ups and downs along the way, but... Do you think he could have handled the settler movement any differently? Or do you think, look, they were set against him, there's nothing he could have done to change their views towards him? Let's look at the facts. Could he have handled things differently? I'm sure there were moments here and there, there some things that could have been said differently, more mildly. But really, what's important are the facts. The settlers' movement had an open door. No matter how harsh they were, no matter how venomous those statements were, they had an open door when they came to him with either security issues, humanitarian issues. So politeness was not his main concern. He was about doing things. He was about doing the right thing. And he did the right things. And I think those are the things that when you're mentioning leadership, these are the things that make a leader. You're a leader of everyone or you're a leader of your uh, constituents. As far as uh, you know, teaching us leadership, I think it was more about personal responsibility. It was never the, um, the big things. It was, first of all, be check yourself. These are the things that we, Dali and I, and, and grandchildren were requested to, were demanded of. Before you criticize others, before you pass judgment, you had to have your own uh, ground to stand on so that uh, you can uh, challenge others, not just because you're the son of a prime minister, chief of staff, or minister of defense or ambassador. I had to stand on my own ground to speak. Very different than from what we're seeing today. No, I think that you captured it perfectly. This was a person who defined leadership as sense of personal responsibility to the state and its people and to do what he thought was right and not always what the public wanted, but what they needed. And he owed the public his sense of judgment in being very mission-centric, like a laser beam. Your book described four Israeli leaders and the tough decisions that they've uh, made. Of course, Ben-Gurion is in his, a league of his own in the circumstances that are unparalleled and therefore would not compare. But when I compare, let's say, Begin and Sharon and my dad, I think that, and I like to say this, and I've said it numerous times in interviews, I think that in 1992, my father presented probably for the first and maybe only time 
strategic vision for the country of Israel. So in the popular mind, you could say maybe the public has got it went wrong. Him and Clinton had an excellent relationship. Him and Jordan's King Hussein had also an excellent relationship. They saw the region very similarly between the moderates and the radicals and the need to navigate the choppy waters of the Middle East in this regard. His view with Shimon Peres was complicated. It was a work in progress. He was a longtime, even bitter rival from the 70s. And yet they worked together at Oslo for peace during this period when your dad came in from 92 to 95. Is there any anecdote that you could share about these three, either any of the three or all of the three, that would shed some light on your father's relationships with these key leaders? I think the it's well known. The, I mean, everything you said is well, relatively well known. Uh, and it's really what makes a difference. It really comes down to the ability to create the personal relationship with Japantli. My father was able to build with both Clinton and Hussein. And I think of the two, the more interesting one is with Clinton, because I think it's not a secret that my father had his choice in the 92 elections. He would probably much have preferred Bush to win a second term and keep uh, the same administration that he was working so well with. Clearly, Clinton, with his background, didn't inhale and and didn't serve, uh, was not the character that he would have chosen. He much have preferred a former CIA guy than uh, a governor of Arkansas. But nevertheless, they managed to build the relationship. And by the way, Clinton, uh, I think it was in the 10th anniversary of my father, in an interview to Channel 2 in Israel, mentioned this. He said, Robin probably didn't want me to win the election, but they did. President Clinton coined the term Shalom Haver so eloquently because they did manage to build their, an unusual relationship. The story with Shimon Peres, it's really the clash of two different characters. My father was not a man of too many words. I think that one of the sayings that he used to say uh, to us at home even, you know, when you have nothing to say, don't speak. <laughs> it's so typical of him. And, you know, when I hear these days about government meetings of hours and hours and hours and hours, he had the ability to manage, to run a government. He was always encouraging the opponents. He forced the opponents to speak, not the, the yes-men it's not interesting. The reality is in the ground. You know, Israel was falling apart. The 80s is a lost decade. It was a lost decade. It was a, what do you call it, a debacle. You know, the Lebanon war, the economic collapse. Israel was on the verge of bankruptcy in 84, 85. 500% inflation. And everybody who lived through this era knows this so well. When your salary was worth about 25% less at the end of the month when 20, 15 days after you got it. So you knew what it is. So we invented the national unity government, which was quite capable of dealing with the crisis. Crisis is, but not more than that. So therefore, Israel went into a decade of stagnation. Roads were not built, schools were not built, the hospital system, the education system, uh, ridden with with strikes, and that he came to change. He came to create a new deal, a new social uh, 
reality and the famous statement that uh, security is not just tanks, fighters, and gunboats or missile boats. It's about the school, it's about your health, it's about the neighborhood and about the street you live in. And he showed that in three years you can make a huge difference. So, Yuval, I really want to thank you so much. I mean, this is really important. This perspective of your father's is obviously unique that no one else is going to have. Thank you, David. We have just heard from three people who were close to Yitzhak Rabin, including his own son, Yuval. What was striking to me was that they all spoke about Rabin's understanding of the role of leadership. Rabin did not equate leadership with popularity. And in a personal sense, Rabin believed intellectual honesty required people to see things as they are and admit mistakes when necessary. Yuval recalled his dad telling him, quote, check yourself, end quote, meaning make sure everyone is accountable to yourself and to others. This means a commitment to overarching principles. Taken together, Rabin equated leadership with having the courage of conviction. Tragically, he paid the ultimate price. However, he set Israel on a course where for the first time, the Zionist and Palestinian national movements came to deal with each other. For all the problems, they were now dealing with each other face to face. It was fitting for Rabin, who believed you need to face reality forthrightly. This was classic Rabin, look squarely at the truth. He sought to strengthen the country he loved so much. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, a researcher, Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site.